good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Jude is where we will be this morning. We will be looking specifically at verse 21 or the latter half of verse 21. To give you somewhat of an introduction to our text, really throughout the, this, these few verses, particularly 19, 20, and 21, there seems to have been a, a process that Jude's been working through to give us particular methods, methods may not be the best word, but practical outworkings of how we live as we're contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered. You know, just as uh, by way of reminder, we're called to build ourselves up in the most holy faith, yourselves being the plural there, that there's activity on, on one another's behalf, essentially, that I'm building myself up for you, you're building yourself up for me, and thus we're all building ourselves up together, that we're actively praying in the Holy Spirit, seeking to enjoy the fellowship that we have purchased by Jesus Christ by actually going to him and fellowshipping with him in the throne room of grace. And then even considering the, the major command here, and the major command that we find in this text is the keeping yourselves in the love of God. It is obviously the hope of the Christian is that we enjoy and we dwell and we're comforted and we're made confident by the love that Christ has for his people, the love that God has lavished upon his people since before the world began. And then the final building block for this that we'll work through is the one that we'll deal with this morning, which is ultimately the waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that ends in eternal life. Now, what I really want to do this morning is I want to make somewhat of an argument that waiting in the Christian life is warring in the Christian life. That basically one of the key tenets of how we faithfully live here below is that we faithfully live anticipating another day. That we are always looking forward to and longing for something that's on the horizon. There's great ground of confidence and hope that we have today. We can sing, great is thy faithfulness because of the promises that we've enjoyed and participate in even today. Christ is faithful. He's delivered on his promises, but the reality is that there are promises yet to be delivered and we should look forward to them. Looking forward to the promises that Jesus will deliver is not a rejection or a refusal to enjoy the promises that have already been given. As a matter of fact, I'm convinced that as we enjoy and as we take the mercy of God given for this particular day, as we understand it appropriately, it leads us to rightfully anticipate the mercy that is to come. And so it's my hope this morning to lay out to us the mercy of Jesus Christ, to give it some, to fill it somewhat full so that we can see it, because really what we'll notice from this text leading into next week is that this is the fountainhead from which we give mercy to others. As we're working through this, you'll notice that there's mercy that flows from Jesus Christ, and then there is commandment on how we deal with one another next week, and this commandment is dealing with the mercy that we are to give to one another as we live together and strive together, looking forward to that great day. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Jude, starting in verse 17, and we'll make our way through the end of the chapter, I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Jude, starting in verse 17, says this, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Father, Lord, give us hearts that are longing. Yes, Lord, a heart that is enjoying the present promises that have been delivered, the present graces, the present mercies, the present patience. Lord, all of these things we boast in not because we have merited them, but because we want to boast in the cross and we know that the cross has purchased these for us. Father, I pray that you would help us to look forward to the mercies that are to come, 
Lord, that you would fill this simple word so full of glory that every time we hear it, we would be reminded that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, show us the mercies that you give us each and every day. And Lord, as we look forward to the final mercy that brings us into the kingdom, that relieves from us the presence of sin forevermore, that gives life to our mortal bodies, that converts it, that makes it whole and glorified as your son Jesus' body is. Father, would you give us great anticipation and joy and would that strengthen our legs for the journey that we have here below? It's in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as we walk through this, what I'd like to do is give a brief, essentially an argument for what waiting means. Um, I think basically when we think of the word wait, I think about when I look at my four-year-old, five-year-old now and tell her to wait for something and immediately the response is, I'm not doing that. And, And when we think about waiting, there actually is activity that takes place as we're waiting for the final day. There's something that we are doing in the midst of our waiting. I do not want us to believe that waiting is arbitrary. As a matter of fact, I think that really two epistles were written to argue against the concept that waiting therefore means you do nothing. And that's 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. We are not permitted to not wait and we are not permitted to be lazy as we wait. There's activity that's taking place as we're waiting for that final day, as we're waiting for the mercy of Jesus that will come on that last day. And so what I'd like to do is essentially lay out an argument of what it means to wait first and foremost. And then secondarily, I want to lay out to you the mercy of Jesus Christ, hopefully giving you great joy in that and maybe even causing you to look forward to the unique mercies that will come on the final day. And then I want to build out the eternal life that we should be looking forward to and and answer the question, why would you command this as he's commanding us to contend? Why is he telling us as we're supposed to be contending for the faith is the primary argument of Jude is urging us to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered. Why is it necessary and important to include that the church should be actively waiting as it's contending? And so with that said, let's look at what it means to wait. So looking at our verse, you'll notice just a rather simple phrase, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So what does it mean to wait? To wait is to look forward to something with eager expectation. That means that we are actually meditating upon the future glory, the future mercy of Jesus Christ. I think I've probably mentioned this before, but there was a period of my life where I sincerely forgot. It was not in the pulpit that I was under. It was not in the conversations that I was having with other believers. I forgot that the Lord Jesus was actually going to return and bring his people back to himself. It wasn't a rejection that he was going to come. It was simply an omission. It was an omission in preaching and teaching. It was an omission in my Bible reading. And I'll never forget the day that I stumbled back upon 1 Corinthians 15 as I was studying the scriptures and I was jarred by the reality that Jesus is coming. And for years, I had overlooked this. And as I had overlooked it, I was truly not abiding or obeying the commandment to wait for the mercy of Jesus Christ. Was I sitting there and faithfully following Jesus to the best of my ability? Certainly, but I was not anticipating a final day. I was not anticipating the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that would come to me in those last few hours. Waiting is active in nature. It means that we are looking forward to something with eager expectation, ways that we can think about this from an illustrative standpoint. I think about the individual right now, perhaps, who's looking forward to graduation. They're starting their senior year and they're looking forward to the day that they graduate and they can make their way into the real world. Maybe don't long for that one so deeply. Or perhaps the, the mother who's pregnant, eight months longing to hold their child for the very first time. A dad who's longing to meet them. This is an eager anticipation and waiting. You are looking forward to something. Or perhaps it is that as you're waiting for your wedding day, you're counting down the days and hours up until that wonderful event where you can take your bride to yourself. The reality is that true waiting is an eager anticipation. It's a longing for something. It's a desire, an overwhelming desire that dramatically impacts your present state of being. To say that you're waiting for something that doesn't impact the way that you live today is really an argument of futility. You can't lay out a true argument saying, I'm waiting for something and it doesn't affect my present at all. No, Waiting for something is an eager expectation. It is a mind that is occupied looking forward to something that is coming. Now, the beautiful thing about this is that the commandment that's given here is not an arbitrary waiting or a waiting, uh, a waiting on something that might come to fruition. We are not waiting on a possibility, saints. 
We are waiting on a promise. The promises of God are not up for negotiation. They will come to pass. His saying is his doing. If he has promised to us that he will come, we take that to the bank the very same way that we rest in the present mercies of Christ. We rest and enjoy and have great comfort in the fact that we have the mercy of God given to us this very day. There were people who waited on that very mercy for thousands and thousands of years. Saints, what we are waiting for is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for that second time, that second and final time. But the waiting is not one of uncertainty. It is one of great confidence and certainty. We know that he will come. He has promised us this, and we should find great comfort and confidence in that. We do not wait as we wait on men. We wait as if we are waiting on God, thus saying, we know, we know that these things will come to pass. I'm reminded of even passages in Romans chapter five, where it tells us that the, the hope of God does not disappoint This hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts. But not only is it anchored in the fact that we have a love toward God, the reality is that the hope does not disappoint is because it's not based upon creatures who are subject to change. It's based upon God whose word stands forever. And so we have great confidence in the midst of our waiting. We long for, we have eager anticipation for something that we know will come. Now to give you a few examples we see in the scriptures about this. We see this waiting in the intertestamental period. I want to set forth Luke chapter 2 for just a moment. Luke chapter 2 is perhaps one of the best verses or best chapters for us to look at as we're considering the period of time between the Old and the New Testaments. And the reason it's so important is because it really does give us the heartbeat of people who have longed for, who have eagerly waited for the Lord Jesus, waited for the promises of God. They read through the Old Testament. They understood that there was a mystery that was hidden for ages that was about to be revealed. And this one man in particular, Simeon, was promised that he would see the coming of this wonderful gift of heaven. Luke chapter 2 verses 22 through 26 says this, and when the time came for their purification and according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. It is at the moment where he takes the Lord Jesus, the infant Lord Jesus in his arms, that he begins to break out ultimately in praise and adoration. He is eagerly waited for this coming Messiah. He has longed for him. And hear me, saints, longed for him. He longed for the prophetic word very clearly revealed in the living word. And so the Lord Jesus shows up. Simeon is blessed. He is longed for. He is waited for. You can imagine Simeon as he's making his way to do his priestly ministry. He would have thought each and every day, perhaps this is the day that I will see the Lord Jesus. Perhaps this is the day where the promise that God made to me through prophecy, I will lay hands on the living word. I will find in the very temple that I serve in the Christ who is the son of God. What unique longing that must have been. But it is not just as though Simeon was longing and anticipating the promised Messiah. Luke 2, 36 through 38 tells us of another Anna. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phineal, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem." You see, just, just, just in these two verses, just in these two sections, you have, you have Simeon who's longing for the promise fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you have Anna who witnesses this all unfold and her immediate reaction is to praise the Lord Jesus and to delight in God who had given him to us. And then secondarily to go and to make the good news known that the Messiah has come to all those who are waiting in eager anticipation for this promised one. There has always been in the life of the church a longing, an eager expectation of something to come. 
Now, not only do we see this at the birth of our Lord, we also see it at his ascension. He looks at his apostles in Acts 1 and tells them, you must go and wait before you make your way to fulfill the Great Commission. So basically in Acts 1 through 4, we read this. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Even in this brief period of time awaiting the giving of the Holy Spirit, he's telling his apostles, go wait. Wait with eager anticipation that the promises of God will truly come to fruition. The apostles go, they wait, they wait knowing that the Spirit will truly come and rest upon them. And then from that point forward, they go on with their ministries. But the church has always been, since the days of the ascension of our Lord, has always been awaiting his return. Listen to what Titus 2 says. Titus 2 verse 13 says this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who were zealous for good works. The church is always awaiting church. Those who were of true Israel awaited the coming of the Messiah. They longed for it. We see the apostles wait from the period of Jesus' ascension until the giving of the Holy Spirit. They waited with eager expectation and saints. What we are called to do day in and day out is to eagerly anticipate the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, is to long for that, to long for that final day. It is the church's occupation and it has been her occupation and will be her occupation until the day that that he has made all things new. We are awaiting people. But hear me, saints, our waiting is a warring. We are waiting in eager anticipation. We are longing for that great day. And as we do so, that waiting uniquely fuels us for the fight that we are currently in. And we'll deal with that in the conclusion. So what are we waiting for in particularly? Jude lays out, not only are we waiting, but we are waiting specifically for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, which I think does lead us to ask a rather simple question. Haven't we already received the mercy of Jesus? I mean, we go on professing that we are those whom God has had mercy upon. We read passages like Romans 9, and it tells us that he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. And it's speaking of a particular people there. It's speaking of vessels of mercy. Saints, we are those vessels of mercy. We have been prepared not for destruction, but for glory glory. We have received the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say without reservation, yes and amen, we have received that wonderful mercy. A couple of key passages that lay that out for us in full. First Timothy 1-2, he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. The vast majority of greetings in the New Testament include the phrase of mercy. Even Jude goes on in verse 2 to say, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This mercy, this peace, this love, these wonderful gifts of God that flow from Christ, we have truly received. Titus 3, 5 through 7 says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We have been saved again, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Our whole salvation is anchored in the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we are not awaiting that salvation in a full sense. We have and are glad partakers in it today. We say with great confidence in this very moment, with this very breath, God is extending great mercy to me. He's been gracious. He's been kind. He's demonstrated that wonderful mercy by redeeming us and bringing us into the household of faith. And so we say with absolute, with absolute confidence, we have the mercy of Jesus Christ. But as we have the mercy of Jesus Christ, we not only enjoy it, but we are always anticipating it. It is this Perhaps strange dynamic, but it is a strange dynamic that we find throughout really the entirety of the Christian life. We are always people who are satisfied, and yet at the very same time, always wanting more of that which satisfies us. I mean, we, we, we say, yes, God is all satisfying. And at the very same time, from the very same mouth, we say, ah, but give me more of him. The Christian life is somewhat of an enigma in this. We're always satisfied, we're always full, and yet at the very same time, we are always wanting more of the very thing that satisfies us, and perhaps even more so, we are always needful of that thing which satisfies. 
And so we say, yes, we have the mercy of God, but listen to Lamentation 3, 22 through 23. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We are always needing and always wanting for new mercies every day. Saints, the beauty of this is, yes, we can say the mercy of God rests upon us today, but the reality is tomorrow you're going to need it just as much as you need it today. We are always needing the mercies of our God. Yes, we depend upon it. We rest, we rest on it. We drink it in and savor it, but we are always needing it for the next day. The moment the mercies of God cease for us, saints, we would be in a woeful state. But the beauty is because of the finished work of Jesus, we never wonder if his mercies will be there tomorrow because yes, indeed, great is your faithfulness. And so we say with absolute confidence, I have received the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. I will receive it tomorrow. But even more so than that, I await that unique mercy that will come on the last day. And there is a unique mercy that Jude is essentially making an argument for. That unique mercy is the mercy on the final day that will usher us into eternal life. But if we could for a moment, before we look at the eternal life that's being made reference to, let's consider the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jude invokes a rather unique phrase. It's not unique to us. We speak of the mercy of Christ often, but the scriptures actually very rarely speak of the mercy of Jesus. The vast majority of the time, it's the mercy of God, speaking specifically of the Father. It seems as though there's one or perhaps two times, depending on what you do with the language, that there's only one or two times that we find the mercy given of the mercy of God attributed first and foremost to the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet throughout the gospels, we see this mercy clearly demonstrated. Mercy and compassion are really two threads that you can pull throughout the gospels. And as you do so, you will see that Christ is constantly exhibiting this mercy on fallen creatures. So let's just see a couple of ways that we see this in the New Testament. Let's just take the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 13 says this, speaking to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, looking at the Pharisees, we understand what the Lord Jesus is doing is ultimately rebuking them and saying, you're aiming to do everything in your power to make yourself righteous. But the reality is I've come for sinners. You say you want sacrifices. You're pursuing your self-righteous act. And I say that I've come for sinners. Jesus is essentially saying, I have come not first and foremost for sacrifice, though that is the means by which he will bring mercy. It is the means by which he will flood his people with his very mercy. And so we see the Lord Jesus essentially say that he desires mercy. We can say with absolute confidence that he embodies mercy and he is the fountain of God's mercy. So to give you a couple of ways that we see Jesus express this, express this mercy in the book of Matthew. First, Jesus had mercy as he healed the blind. Listen to Matthew 9, 27 through 30. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes saying, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. This is the mercy of Christ extended to men who do not deserve it. Matthew 20, 29 through 34, same same healing, same mercy given, different account. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It is important to note that every single time that we see blind men invoke the phrase son of David, there, is, there should be an immediate hearkening back to the Old Testament where we see David say that he hates the blind with his soul. And yet, what do these men cry? Son of David. And the Lord Jesus reaches out. 31, the crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In stopping, Jesus called them and said, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let, your eye, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity and compassion, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. This is the mercy of our Lord looking at blind men who even the crowds are telling to hush and the king of glory, 
says, I can hear the voice of these blind men crying out for mercy and I will go satisfy. And as he goes and satisfies, he not only goes to stoop down to have a conversation, but he goes to relieve the unique and suffering condition that they are in. Further, let's look at Matthew 15. Jesus having mercy on the Canaanite woman and her daughter. Matthew 15, 22 through 28 says this, And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And she said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. The mercy of our Lord extended not only to the blind, but to the, those who were outside, seemingly, of the household of faith. But we know that these are those who have true faith, those who are rightly belong to the true Israel. Finally, Jesus had mercy on the demon-possessed boy, Matthew 17, 15 through 18. Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffered terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And so you see the mercy of Christ essentially demonstrated throughout the entirety of his earthly ministry. And if I could give somewhat of a definition on the other side of giving these illustrations, there are two ways that we are to think about mercy. The first way is that we are not giving someone what they deserve. Essentially, mercy is when a judge says, yes, you deserve to die, but instead I won't give you the death sentence. The second way, and I think the way that is most clearly in view today, is an internal desire to relieve a suffering condition. That This is what the Lord Jesus embodied as he cared and as he worked through his ministry on the earth. He looks at blind men, blind beggars, the lowest of people, and he says, I'm going to relieve the condition in which they are found. To the glory of God, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to heal a blind man. To a Canaanite woman and her daughter, he says, I'm going to relieve the suffering at hand. I'm going to give them peace. I'm going to give them rest. I'm going to extend the mercy that only I can freely give. And as I do so, they will be brought out of such a suffering and wayward condition. In the very same way, the demon-possessed boy and his father, in the midst of great anguish, you can imagine, the father just longs for his son to not be regularly thrown into the fire in the midst of seizures. And essentially the call is, Lord, have mercy. And in the midst of that, what does the Lord Jesus do? He comes and he relieves this fallen, difficult, suffering condition. He has mercy on them. Now that all is in the temporal. That is all there to demonstrate to us the unique mercy of Christ. We are not even speaking of the grandeur of relieving the fallen condition that every single sinner finds themselves in. Slaves to sin and death, bound to it, oppressed, oppressed far worse than the Egyptians were, than the Israelites were in Egypt. They were slaves to sin. They were being beaten down and bruised. And the reason that we have any point of confidence, the reason that we can say that we are free, that we are full, that we are at peace, that we are at rest, that we are satisfied is because of the mercy of Jesus Christ. He has opened our eyes. He has freed us from the powers and principalities. He has brought us into new life. All of this flows from the simple mercy of our Lord, that he has given this to us. He has lavished it upon us. And we see this really specifically as we look at passages like Luke 154 and Luke 176. Luke 154, I imagine many of you are familiar with and have read and studied this very passage. This is Mary's prayer as she's considering the fact that she is pregnant with the Lord of glory. And this is what she says, starting in verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary is considering the unique mercy that is coming to the world through her womb. And then Zechariah, even as he meditates upon his own son's birth, prophesies concerning it. He says this in verse 76, and you child, speaking of John, will be called prophet of the most high. 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Why is He doing this? Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John himself professes that he is not that light. He is not the mercy of God given to Israel. He is simply a prophet preparing the way. The true light, the mercy of God embodied is the man Christ Jesus. If we want to understand the mercy of God, if we want to delight in it to see that word filled full with glory, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see the various ways he has expressed that mercy toward us. And we see it demonstrated in the accounts that we've given of him healing the blind and saving the Canaanite woman's daughter and casting out the demon, the, the demon of the boy who was thrown into seizures. But we see it most clearly in his coming and secondarily in his cross work. As we consider the cross work of our Lord, we see great demonstrations of His mercy. And I just want to give two before we deal with the actual ramification of Him dying on the cross for us. In the midst of His cross work, we have a refusal from our Lord to call down legions of angels. This is in and of itself an expression of mercy. Why is He not going to call down legions of angels? There are two reasons. The first is He's going to be perfectly obedient to the Father. And the second is He has people who He longs to be merciful to, who he desires and delights to be merciful to. Matthew 26, 53 through 54 says this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? And then redemption is cast out. No salvation to be provided, no mercy to be given. Instead, justice and all justice. But no, our Lord is faithful. And so what does he do? He goes and willingly goes to the cross that he might pass the cup of mercy to the people who he died for. And then also in his dying, you see the refrain, Father, forgive them. That is an astonishing mercy to the men who are nailing him to a tree, who have beat him with a whip of nine tails, who have mocked him, who have shoved a crown of thorns upon his head, and even as he's dying, continue to mock him, and as the Psalms say, wag their heads at him. And what does he do? He continues to pray, Father, forgive them. Essentially a plea saying, do not give them what they deserve. Finally, in his dying in our place, we see a demonstration of mercy, but costly mercy. This mercy is not free in the sense that it did not cost something. It's freely given without question, but the mercy of God flows through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The reason that he is caring for us, the reason the sun rose today is because the mercy of God has been purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ for his people. In his dying, we see this unique costly mercy. Finally, the mercy of Christ coming on the last day. We are always looking forward to and anticipating that final day. First Peter lays this out for us. It uses the term grace here, but nonetheless, I think the, the meaning holds. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think these two largely go in tandem with what we find in Jude one twenty one. So we wait for this mercy. We delight in this mercy. Hopefully we are wooed as it were by this mercy. And it's important that we be wooed by this mercy, saints, because the reality is that the way we view this mercy will be the way that we conduct ourselves inside the household of faith, which we'll notice in the, in the following text. So going forward, so what does Jude have in mind then? If this is the mercy of Christ, if that's what we're looking forward to, if that's what we're awaiting, what does Jude have in mind when he tells us to wait for that mercy? First, he encourages us to wait for that which we have already tasted. This is vitally important for us. We, we, speak, we even sing songs, foretastes of glory divine. We are looking forward to something that we have already experienced to an extent, and we are looking forward to a further and even more glorious experience of it in the last day. And so he encouraged us to wait for something that we have already tasted. Saints, this is a great grounds of confidence. And I think even more so, it helps us wait well. It's not as though we're anticipating something that we've never experienced. We're saying we've experienced the mercy of God. We love the mercy of God. It's a comfort to our very souls. It fuels us day in and day out. And therefore, I'm right to wait for it. Again, 1 Peter 1.3 tells us this, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have experienced that mercy 
mercy of God in our very conversion. The moment that we go from death to life, it is an expression of the very mercy of God toward us. And then secondarily, Titus 3, 5, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That we have drank this, we've tasted its flavors, we know of its scent, and we long for it. We are actively looking forward to that which we have already tasted. He also is encouraging us to wait not only on that which we have tasted, but on that which we are certain of. It is not an arbitrary waiting. It is a certainty, as I have already mentioned. This is true biblical waiting. As we hope, we do not hope like the world. We hope with absolute certainty. The way that Abraham hoped against hope, as it were, he was certain that there was no way that he could bear a child, but he was certain against certainty because God had spoken. He knew, and so it is, as we wait, we wait for that which we are certain of. And as we are waiting, we await the mercy of Jesus that brings us out of the presence of sin. To give you just a couple of categories here, two in particular, but the first thing that we are waiting for and longing for is being free forever from the presence of sin. I hope that's sweet to your ears. The reality is I can't make you hate sin the way that you should. I can't make myself hate sin the way that I should. But I assure you that your hatred is not strong enough so listen to this and be encouraged. Isaiah 25, 9 through 12, it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain and Moab shall be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together with the skill of his hands and the high fortifications of his walls he will bring down, lay low and cast to the ground, to the dust. You see the dual proclamation there? The dual proclamation is first, he has saved us. He has rescued, he has redeemed, he has brought us out of such turmoil and difficulty and sorrow and suffering. And the second proclamation is, and he has laid low the enemies. The reality is that after this final day, this is what we are waiting for. After this final day, sin's presence will never come near you. It will never come near you. It cannot arise from within you because of the purity that he brings in glorification. And you will not be tempted from without because you will dwell in the wonderful holy heaven where no sin is ever permitted to be. You will be made into such an estate that not only will you be sinless, it will be impossible for you to sin. This is a great glory and hope and anticipation. And saying, if this does not thrill your soul, I would ask the question, do you understand sin's consequence? Do you understand sin's essence? And then secondarily, do you understand the holiness of your God? Because as you understand the holiness of your God, I assure you, as you grasp those truths, your hatred for sin can only multiply. And so, yes, we long for the day, the mercy of Jesus that will bring us out of the presence of sin. The reality is we as Christians have been delivered from its consequence and its power. We understand that its consequence has been dealt with in full by the Lord Jesus Christ. We understand that the Spirit of God indwells us, that the power that sin once had over us has actually been abolished. Is there still warring with sin? Most certainly, but its power has been utterly dismayed. But the presence of sin is something we still live with. But by God's grace and the mercy that comes on that final day, we will see it no more after he comes. We await the mercy of Jesus that brings us out of the presence of sin. Secondly, we await the mercy to be given to us at the final judgment. Do you tremble at the idea of the final judgment? I think it's reasonable to tremble at the idea of the final judgment. But there is a great hope for us who have believed and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reality is that John even tells us that perfect love casts out this very fear. If we understand, we delight, and we love the Lord Jesus Christ, then the fear of this judgment day will truly be cast out because we understand that fear has to do particularly with judgment. And if we understand the Messiah's work, then perhaps it is that by loving him and delighting in him, we can even see this very fear abolished. But let me give you some fuel to, to strengthen your legs on the last day. Listen to Revelation 20, 11 through 15 for just a moment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. 
And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What mercy do you await on that last day? Not that your name be written in the book of life. Every name that is in that book has already been penned. Nothing is going to be blotted from it. The reality is that these names were written in the very heart and mind of God himself. These names have always been there. You are not awaiting the mercy of God that he might pin your name in the book of life on the last day. You're simply waiting for him to read it aloud. The reality is, saints, that there is no reason for us to fear that final day. If we have depended upon and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, we already have the first stroke of confidence, the Spirit of God indwelling us, that our name is written in that book. We are simply awaiting to hear it read aloud, that all of that confidence may flood into our very souls and that we might enter into the paradise of God. This is the unique mercy that we are waiting for. We are simply awaiting for our names to leave his lips, that we might have all the more confidence on that day. This is the mercy that we are waiting for, mercy that we have already experienced, mercies that we are looking forward to tomorrow. But that great and final mercy that brings us into the kingdom of God is something that we should always be anticipating, that we should always be looking forward to. That leads us to the final point, and I'm convinced the, the, the reason that Jude penned this in this way. Because the final thing is this. Listen to verse 21 again. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. What then is the fruit of the mercy of which we speak? The fruit of that mercy is eternal life. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages from the book of John that lays out to us, I think appropriately, the mercy of God toward his particular people. Listen to John 5, 26 through 29. For as the father has life in himself, so he has granted the son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. I want you to notice the language here. All who are in the tombs, not some, all, every single individual who are in the tombs, all of the dead will come to life. They will hear his voice. And this is what verse 29 says, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You notice what you see in this text is that Jesus is the judge. This has been a refrain of the book of Jude anyway, but what you'll notice is that Jesus is the judge. Jesus is the one who calls every single individual out of the grave, and then he gives life to those who are his people, and he gives condemnation to those who are not. The mercy of God is the reason that you will be in heaven. The mercy of God and the mercy of God alone, apart from the wonderful mercy of Jesus Christ, his desire to relieve his bride's fallen condition, you have no access to that place. But the reality is that because of the mercy of Christ, because of his giving of unique life to his people, of which he has unique authority to do, that on that final day, the reason that you will be brought in is because Christ has been merciful. So we look forward to this day. It's meant to be a point of great confidence. The reason that we enjoy the hope of being brought into eternal life is only because of Christ's mercy. Now, if I could, just for a moment, I want to mark those moments of eternal life. What are we speaking of when we're speaking of the eternal life? First, we are speaking of not only the soul converted, but the body. Spurgeon has a beautiful quote as he's anticipating the final day of judgment. He says, my soul has been converted and on that day, my body will be. That the great hope of the day of glory is that my frail human form that's subject to decay, that's subject to the frailty of sinful desires and carnality, on that day, this body will be raised imperishable, undefiled. That is a great hope. It will be an immortal body for me to live eternally with my King. And so it is for all of the church of God. We look forward to the day that our bodies will truly be converted and we will dwell forever with Him. This is a unique mercy that comes on that last day. But not only do we look forward to the body being changed, we look forward to dwelling with God in the brightest sense. We absolutely say without hesitation that you have eternal life now, saint. I make no apology for that. The life that you have right now is the life that you will continue to have. It will never be taken from you. You will have most certainly a moment where you draw your last breath if the Lord tarries, but you will never be separated from him. 
You will never be separated from him. You are far more likely to be separated from your body for a season than you will be from your Lord. The reality is that we look forward to dwelling with him in the brightest sense. We dwell with him today. We delight in his presence today. But on that day, that wonderful, beautiful presence of Christ will be uniquely given to us. We will then not only hear of his goodness and experience it, we will see it and behold it. And oh, how we should long for that day. Not only is that eternal life a conversion of the body and God dwelling with us, it is sin gone. Presence totally abolished, as we have already mentioned. The incredible nature of this is some of us can't even fathom life without sin. That's how deeply rooted it is in our soul. But on that day, saints, we will be free in the truest sense. You'll wonder how you lived with it. No, sin gone, presence abolished altogether, discord destroyed. When we think about the gathering of the saints around the throne, we do not consider if there be divisions in their midst. We know with absolute confidence that they are gathered around the throne to sing praises to the one whom they are perfectly united in. Discord is utterly destroyed. It will never exist again. Brothers will truly dwell with brothers in perfect harmony. This is something we long for and look forward to. Suffering non-existent. Saints, as long as sin is present, so will suffer be. But in that place, there is no sin, thus there is no suffering. That means cancer, Alzheimer, diabetes, all of the difficulties and trials of this life will utterly be abolished. You will not deal with them. You will be made perfectly whole in the light of your king. There will be no suffering there, just joy. And if we take Romans 16 to be a clear and perfect example, we must say that there are pleasures forevermore and endless, boundless joy in that place. No, suffering is gone, gone altogether. Christ has conquered it. Christ in this place will be the light of our eternal day. No sunset. Some of you like the night, but no sunset in that place. His warmth, his rays will always be upon our face and we will always rest in that glorious light. He will warm, he will shine in that place with unique glory. Words fail to describe such splendor and beauty. And this is what the mercy of Christ has brought us. The mercy of Christ has brought us an eternal day where he is our light. Clothes in that place will be raiments of righteousness. Perfect, washed in the very blood of Jesus, cleansed to the uttermost, not a spot, not a wrinkle, not a stain. This is what will clothe the saints in that place. Water from perfect purity and beauty. That the water will be uniquely satisfying and quenching because it flows from the crystal sea. Food from the wedding feast of the lamb. Celebrating the victory of Jesus. Delighting in the fact that he has made his bride ready and consummated that wonderful marriage. Love inexhaustible and unending, meaning that there is no plumbing its depths. There's always more and more love behind it and it will never fade nor falter. It will be the sweetest, most inexhaustible and unending love that we can ever fathom. Things that we have foretaste of here but still look forward to on that final day brought by the mercy of Jesus. Fruit from the tree of life given to us, given for the healing of the nations. We will eat in its sweet, precious notes and all of these in the clothes and the water and the food and the the love and the fruit will all be filled with notes of Christ in his finished work. Worship in that place will be always and without fail. Our voices will not shake and falter. As we live our lives, sin will not steal the moment of delight in Christ from us. Instead, we will go on worshiping in both the vast moments where we sing and delight in our King together and in the very minutia of the day. We will truly abide by whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it to the glory of God. Fields, filled with filled and free from thorns. Thorns, thistles are cast away. The fields are simply full altogether, that the harvest will indeed be satisfactory, that every need will be satisfied in that place, and the very marks of the curse will be done away with altogether. Thorns, thistles are abolished. They were laid on our king that they might not be there. Loss, none. None. Even as we have read this morning, to give our lives away, to lose our lives for the sake of Christ, we will find it. Saints, there is no loss in that place. It's just endless gain. This is the eternal life that the mercy of Jesus has bought for us. And thus, it is no surprise that Jude, as he's telling us to contend for the faith in this reality, war-torn world, he tells us, wait for the future life. Wait for the future life. I just want to give you two, two major reasons here. First, why do we wait? We wait because as we contend, we need the hope of a glorious end. Saints, we need optimism around this end. 
We need conviction that all of the promises of God will come to fruition. Everything that I have read to you, even considering our eternal life, that is not conjecture. That's not just flowery, flowery language placed upon eternality. It's the promises of God that are given to us. This isn't the arguments of mere men. This is the promises of God. These are truly going to be delivered to you. And so as you live this life contending for the faith that was once and for all delivered, perhaps you can even picture the war in which we are constantly, uh, constantly battling. We are always laboring, always warring. We are always prevailing in the very same sense. As we war, we fight for our brothers and sisters. You can imagine even shepherds fighting for their flock. Perhaps it is that they are tired. Perhaps it is that life lions and bears, and all of these enemies have waged war against them. But hear me, saints, the shepherds will stand because they have a wonderful, wonderful, faithful over-shepherd. The sheep will not be devoured. Each and every member of the flock of God waging war for one another, protecting their weaker and perhaps more frail brother or the one that is younger in the flock. Yes, we war, but we war while we wait. We know that at the end of the day, the dawn will come. We know that Christ will prevail. We know that all of his promises will come to fruition. And we are not like those who wait. And as they wait, they grow cold. No, we wait. And as we wait, we are emboldened to live the Christian life faithfully. It is such a true statement that many, as they wait, as they anticipate, They do so to such an extent, not active, not truly looking forward to what they are longing for, and they grow cold and feeble and frail. Not the church of God. The church of God is always anticipating, always waiting with eager expectation that the promises of God will come to fruition. And hear me, the beauty of the promises of God is that they birth boldness in His people because we do not wait like the world. We wait with absolute confidence that the day will come, that the mercy that we have looked forward to that will lead us into eternal life will truly come to fruition. And so saints, if I could make one simple appeal, as you are aiming to keep yourself in the love of God, We must make it our aim to build one another up in the most holy faith. We must make it our aim to be constantly praying in the Holy Spirit. And we must keep ourselves in the love of God by waiting for the unique mercy of Christ that will come on that final day. Let's pray together.